we will not compromise, we will persevere. That's the message to us from, uh, message for us today, and that's the lesson that we have from this church, uh, the letter written to uh, Pergamum. We've been um, looking at the seven lessons from the seven letters, and so I want to draw your attention to Revelation chapter 2, I'm going to read to you from verses 12 to 11. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 to, uh, 12 to 17, sorry. How do I go back? Would you all rise with me as I read God's word? And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet... You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, that you, uh, uh, you have some there who, who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and to practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give, uh, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Father, we thank you for the reading of your words. Speak to us, Lord. Speak to us. May it be your voice, your word, that sticks to our heart, not the weakness or the feebleness of, my, uh, of what I might bring in. We thank you in Jesus Christ, our Lord's name. Amen. Please be seated. We... Uh, we saw that this is the Lord's feedback. This is God giving an assessment of the seven churches. And um, I was thinking about uh, feedback. I was saying, you know, how, how do we receive feedback? We want, you know, when we ask for feedback, we want praise. We just want people to say, uh, would you give me a feedback? All I want to know is praise. I, I want you to, you know, encourage me. I want you to... Uh, tell that I'm good, and that's about it. I really don't need to know about your opinion, what you really think. It's, you know, that's how we look at feedback. I was, uh, I don't know if you've asked this of Alexa or of uh, Google Home, and I really don't know how I know this, but if you ask Alexa, am I the best? Alexa will say, I have no opinion on that. And uh, so really, you know, you have Alexa, I think, who, which has a higher moral conscience in some way that doesn't want to uh, praise you unnecessarily or without cause. And then you have, and now uh, what we really want is this praise. And so as I was thinking about this, this the Lord's feedback is neither self-congratulatory or not with uh, you know, he, he, he doesn't hold back, but graciously provides what the truth is. He speaks the truth in love. And as I was 
looking at this uh, letter to Pergamum, the lesson that really spoke to me is we will not compromise, but we will persevere. We, the previous two letters that we saw, we saw in Ephesus, uh, Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, but I have this against you. You have departed from your first love. That was the first of the main uh, thoughts that we took away from that letter. It says that your works must not replace your love. That's the lesson. Just because we are active in God's work, just because we are, you know, we are involved, we'll do a lot of things, that cannot replace love. That's lesson one. Lesson two, we saw from Smyrna that they were encouraged. In chapter two, verse 10, it says, do not be afraid of the things that you're about to suffer. That our sufferings must not frighten us. That's the second lesson. Our sufferings must not frighten us. That our present suffering does not put our future hope in danger. Just because we are suffering today, it does not impact our future hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today as we look at the letter in Pergamum, the thing that we want to ask ourselves is this. Our circumstance is not an excuse for us to compromise. Just because I'm suffering, just because I have a circumstance that seems to be challenging, does not give me an occasion, does not allow me to compromise in anything else. God is very particular that uh, as he says this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, we saw, I know where you live, but I have a few things against you. Well, we have this tendency to think, right, that I'm struggling here, so God should be, God would cut some slack in this other area. We think of God's grace as saying that he would compromise his character to condone my sin. That is how we look at grace. And yet, that is not what this letter is going to tell us. So, uh, as, a, as, as this letter, we can see this in five parts, and we will go through these five parts real quick. The five parts, the first is, the Lord says, this is who I am. Second, I know where you live. Third, but I have a few things against you. And fourth, so this is what you must do. Fifth, or this is what I will do. Very simply laid out. So the first one, this is who I am. In verse 12, it says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. It's a solemn pronouncement. It's the two-edged sword. I, if we, we think it's a reference to the Roman sword. It's, the, uh, it's a dreaded weapon of war. And uh, the History Channel would have this, uh, us understand that one of the nine blades that forged history, that these were the swords that, if you would turn up, uh, turn to the sword, the one on the sword, please, at the back, um, that this, th this is the sword carried by the Roman officials, that they had the power of life and death, that they could use it, as it were, for capital offenses. And what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing is he gives this extreme example of one of these swords which, which everybody was in terror with because an example of anything less would be less of what God intends us to know of him. 
And he is saying, the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, not these Roman officials who walk around with this two-edged sword, it is me. I am the one who holds the two-edged sword. I'm the true judge. And this sword proceeds from out of his mouth. Six times in the book of Revelation we see this. And the two ideas that come from this is the, is the fact, uh, the, the sword from the mouth, the first imagery is that judgment proceeding from his mouth. Judgment proceeding from his mouth, that he is ready to bring judgment through his word. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, there is a lovely imagery of this. It says, when the lawless one appears, he will bring to nothing with the breath of his mouth. The judgment. But I just love the fact about, his, about the breath Right with the breath of his mouth, and I was thinking about the contrast in Genesis. He his breath was responsible for bringing life, and yet as you get to Revelation, we see that his breath is destroying his enemies. That in his breath is therefore both life and death, just like the sword would be to uh, the people in Pergamum. The second imagery as we see of the double-edged sword, is that of the Word of God. Where do we read about the Word of God being sharper than the two-edged sword? It's in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And there are, in Ephesians, as, uh, as you said, also in, in Ephesians 6, but uh, very clearly in chapter 4 of Hebrews, it said it's sharper, not just like a two-edged sword, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. I want you to see, therefore, the quality of this double-edgedness that God's word separates God's people from the world. It separates God from the sinners. It, it, there is this life and death, the two-edgedness that appears to one life and to the other death. So when he says, I am the one with a two-edged sword, he is... He is warning us, as it were, that this same God, the Lord who holds the sword, because of who he is, life and death. And it, it is for us to therefore understand where we stand, on the wrong edge of the sword, or on the sword that is to us, uh, that brought life. But the second is, I know where you live. If you move to the next one, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, it says, where Satan's throne is. Can you move to the next one, Melvin? Um, this is an altar of Zeus, which is, uh, which is in Berlin. So in Pergamum, which is the city that we're looking at, after the archaeological digs, they actually shipped all of those to Berlin, and they recreated it. It's shaped like a throne, and therefore we believe that that's where the phrase where Satan's throne is, is used, the Satan's throne, okay? So we're saying that I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. And the Lord Jesus Christ is saying this. I know your circumstance. I know your situation. I know that you're going through difficulties. I know where you live. I know. 
and to see that he is a high priest. In Hebrews chapter 4 and 15, it says we have a high priest who can empathize, who knows how we feel, because he himself has suffered and yet without sin. He says this. He says, I know what you're going through. And you live in a place where Satan himself lives. And the city of Pergamum, just to put a context, was a religious city. The city right now is called Bergamum. It's in Turkey. And it was famous for three things. One, it, was, it had the second largest library in the world. Just not, you know, after Alexandria, it was Pergamum. The second largest library. In fact, when Mark Anthony, uh, you know, as a wedding gift, he gives to Cleopatra this library. And second, it was an industrial leader in terms of uh, they were the ones who first invented and mass-produced parchment. You see, Alexandria, where papyrus was, where they would use that for, uh, for writing, they prevented export of papyrus because they didn't want another place to have more books. And so Pergamum comes up with this parchment, which is calf skin on which you would write. If you go and see any of the scrolls that you might have in uh, some of the uh, synagogues, you would see that they are written on calf, calf skins. But they are also known as the temple keepers of Asia. There were three main temples. One of that is where you have this healing of the temple, Asclepius where people would come for healing. And it was like the Ludes of Asia at that time. And then you have this intense emperor worship. They believe, the scholars believe that Pergamum was where they first started to worship the Roman emperor. The imperialism, as, or imperial worship as it's called. And then the third one was this temple of Zeus, where we saw the uh, uh, throne of Satan. But Pergamum, it says in verse 13, it's a place where Satan lives. Really, in short, it was going to be difficult for you as a Christian to live there. And the Lord knows that. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, Antipas, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, in verse 13, right? Uh, even in the days of you held fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. See, Antipas was a dentist and a physician, and the guild, the medical guild there, accused Antipas of uh, secretly converting people to Christianity. And so they sentenced him to death. And before they sentenced, sentenced him to death, he was given the opportunity to recant. And you may have come across this in your reading where he was said, Antipas, the whole world is against you. And Antipas replied, then I'm against the whole world. And then he was burned in a hot copper bull. The next one, uh, the hot so that's how the bull is where the, where the person is put inside it, the fire is placed at the bottom, and the mouth or the head of the person is placed near the head of the bull that as they start to cry in agony, 
the, the moans and the cries would come through those pipes so the head it would feel like the bull had come alive. That is how Antipas was killed. But even in the midst of that flame, this elderly, uh, elderly Antipas, he died praying for the church. And so the Lord is saying to the remaining who are faithful, I understand it is difficult. I understand it's a difficult place to be. And I know where you live, where Satan lives. But then he goes on, the third one, he says, but I have a few things against you. He talks about this holding on to the teaching of Balaam and to the teaching of Nicolaitans. The teaching of Balaam. Now, you might ask, who is this Balaam? Who is this Balaam? Now, Balaam is the guy who had the do talking donkey. And I was thinking that if I had the talking donkey, I would have sold him on eBay, made some money, retired. I wouldn't have gone to, uh, to you know, curse the nation of Israel. But that's, that's where we get this. So in Numbers 22, we won't turn there, but in Numbers 22, we're introduced to two characters. One is Barak, not Obama. Barak is the king of Moab. And he is threatened by the nation of Israel that's camped outside of his kingdom. And the nation of Israel were already told that Moab is out of bounds for you. You don't get to conquer Moab. But he is threatened as he sees the sea of the nation of Israel. And so he calls Balaam. That's where the second character comes. And he is, Balaam is the prophet and he is using, as it were, the gift of this prophecy for wrong things. And thankfully, God doesn't allow that. And so about Balaam, we have a few more details as you get to the New Testament. Uh, Peter mentions him, Jude mentions him, and here now in Revelation. It's important to understand what is happening, all right? So in 2 Peter chapter uh, 2, verse 15, we hear this word, Balaam's way. Balaam's way. And what, what that is, is it's this ungodly way to make a quick buck. You see, I, I'm going to compromise, I'm going to be greedy, but I want to make a quick buck. Then you get to Jude, in verse 4 and verse 11, it's called Balaam's error, where this greed is not content. He, you know, he is seeking more for himself. And so you have the way of Balaam, the error of Balaam, but you get to Revelation, we have what's called the doctrine of Balaam, saying that God is okay. He says, right, so in verse, uh, verse uh, 14, the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balaam to put a stumbling block before the sons of God so that they might eat sacrificed, eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Balaam was saying this to Barak, saying that if you make them sin, God is going to turn against them. And, and when that didn't happen, this doctrine of Balaam now, as in Revelation, as we see, is an attitude that treats sin as no big deal. Sin is okay. That God allows for a little slack. Well, that's all right. That's okay. All right? I mean, God understands. And that opportunities are, are, can be taken advantage of. You see, we, we were, this morning we were talking about how we, we were like the donkeys in heat. We, we, we just forget all rationale and we just get to sin. 
we logically assume everything is okay and God should be all right too. It's a lie that says don't sweat the small stuff. Little sin here, that's okay. That God wants you to be happy no matter what. That's a lie. The Bible wants us to know that it's dangerous. This doctrine of Balaam is dangerous. It's like baloney gone bad. Think that you have to say, no, I will not compromise. I will not compromise. Then you have the teaching of Nicolaitans. So you have the teaching of Balaam, teaching of Nicolaitans that the Lord is pointing out. And the teaching of Nicolaitans is that we are no more under the law, and there's no law for us to follow, or any kind of law that we have to follow. That we live in liberty as we want, and that the grace of God has forgiven us, and will forgive us no matter what, even repeated sin without the need for repentance. Nicolaitans were saying this. You see, grace, we have abundant grace. You can live as you want in unrepentant sin. We have Clement of Alexandria who said this. They abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. Their teacher, they, they, they taught perverted grace and, and replaced liberty with license. So what they did is they, you know, we have that verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 23, that it's, it may be lawful, but it's not profitable. That it's, you know, it may be lawful. You would say, oh, I don't find anything wrong, uh, but it really doesn't help us. But what they did is they took that, they stretched their liberty to license the action, leading some to fall in the faith. And the Lord is saying this to them who teach the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of Nicolaitans, that you need to repent. In uh, Matthew chapter 18, we read this very emphatically. The warning is very clear. It says, if we were to cause others to fall, through this abuse of grace, through the way we live ourselves, it's better for us to tie a millstone around our neck and to jump into the sea. And God is very clear about how our, our, our actions have these consequences. And so in the fourth one, he says, this is what you must do. This is what you must do. He says, repent. We will turn to the next one. Repent. Repent. Two things about, the, about repentance. Two things about repentance. One is it's a command to the faithful. He said those of us who understand when sin is pointed out, we will say, we will say yes, Lord, I want to repent. I want to get away from the sin as quickly as possible. I don't want to stay there. I don't want to rationalize. I don't want to find a reason, a logic. No, nothing. When I see it as sin, I want to run away from that. That's one good response that we get. But second, also, it requires commitment. It says that we have to have the zero tolerance to sin, that I would have nothing to do with sin. If God Almighty is a holy God, that I would have zero tolerance. I will not excuse any kind of sin in my life. 
uh, sin leaves only one option for us, doesn't it? That we repent. No, not condone it, not compromise it, not conceal it, but that we will repent. So this is what you have to do. The Lord says, if you don't repent, this is what I'll do. That's the next one. It says, this is what I will do, or this is what I will do. I'll come against you quickly and make war against those people. In verse 16, now I want you to notice here what is happening. It's a twofold warning. There's a corporate warning and there's an individual warning. The Lord says to the local church, because these letters are written to the local church, and it says that repent or I will come uh, against you quickly. It's against the local church. It's against the local church. I'll come against you quickly. And so the Lord says that to the local church, but he also warns through the local church, and he says there's judgment that he will warn, that he will war against those people. It's this biblical principle that has been played out. I want you to look at this, all right? What's happening, that the individual sin impacts community that our individual sins will impact this community. That is something which we should not forget. You know, we're not islands in the stream, like, you know, sorry, Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. We're not. We impact. We, what we do, our individual sin affects corporate community. Again and again we see that. We see this in Achan. Remember Achan in Joshua 7? Because of his sin, the nation of Israel loses the battle. We come back to Balaam. I think about this Balaam. Now Balaam is this prophet and he, is, he knows it is wrong. He knows that those are the children of Israel. He, he was already told that even before he left. But he says, no, I'm, I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go and see. I'll see what happens. So he gets on his donkey, and he, he tries to get to uh, where the king is. Then he says, okay, let, let's just build the altar, and then we'll see. Just, that, you know, just build an altar. We'll see what the Lord says. And, and, and so one step, one step at a time into, this, into the sin He's like the proverbial frog that's being boiled slowly, doesn't realize that his exit doors are being closing up. By the time you get to Numbers 31, you see that he is dead in the battlefield with the sword of the Israelites. But not before 24,000 children of Israel have died due to plague. Individual sin that affects community both within the children of Israel and Balaam, if you consider him not to be, but yet the impact. Well, I ask myself, how is it with us? How, how, how do we compromise? How, you know, little by little, just a little here, a little there, but we think that's okay. And soon we have seared our hearts. We have calcified our hearts that we are unable to understand the gravity of sin and what it means against God. You see, uh, why is God so caught up? Why is God treating sin with such 
uh, a severe response. It's because it is is high treason against his character. It's like the darkness of soul cannot stand in the light of his holiness. There's just like sin causes us to be in enmity with God. And so as we compromise, we are saying to ourselves, it's okay to sin. And little by little, we have gone ourselves so deep that we haven't we haven't uh, understood a little indifference, a little apathy, and soon it just brings death in whatever, whatever form it might be, whether through chastisement to God's children. We read that in 1 Corinthians 11, he disciplines, or whether through death immediate physical death that he brings to anyone who goes against his word. I ask myself, how, how, how do I see this as a church? G.K. Chesterton had this to say. He says, church is only as healthy as its weakest member. The sin of the individual can drag down the church is what we've been, we, we see here. And then the right practice for this principle is repentance. Repentance, nothing else. That the repentance would be the, the immediate response of a heart that, has, that wants to get right with God. Not compromise, not abuse of grace. And that repentance brings promise. That's what we say to, we see in verse 17. It says, uh, to those who overcome, he offers the hidden manna and the white stone with a new name. A hidden manna. Manna we saw was the food, we know that is the food that on which the nation of Israel fed themselves uh, through the time in the wilderness. But this is the hidden manna. Hidden manna is reference to the pot of manna that was kept in the Ark of Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And there's this invitation that, that some of this hidden manna would be offered to those who are overcomers. This invitation to come, as it were, to the very Holy of Holies to dine, the privilege of dining with God himself. The hidden manna. The hidden manna. But... The Lord is encouraging the Christians here in Pergamum. He's saying, listen, why do you want to go after these food that's offered to the idols? Why do you go after, uh, after this sexual immorality to satisfy your hunger of lust? While you can have the hidden manna, where you can have the true bread from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Why would you f lose your appetite with something else. We, I earlier this, this week or last week, uh, we, I heard this great illustration about losing appetite. I don't know how many of you have been to a chicken farm or a turkey farm. I've been to a turkey farm. When you go there and then you go through the process of what 
you know, what happens and how the chicken is killed and, you know, how they're skinned and whatever happens there. Uh, and then later the chicken nugget, that's even worse, how they make the chicken nugget. I can assure you, if you are addicted to chicken nuggets, go to this place. You'll come back not eating chicken nugget till the Lord comes. But that's losing of appetite. That's a great illustration of losing of appetite, saying that when I see what's happening, when I see what sin does to my soul, the corrosive nature of sin, I don't want to compromise. And the Lord is saying, why would you spoil your appetite with, with the junk that this world is giving you while you can have a steak dinner with me, as it were? Hidden manna is better than that, I can tell you. Because it's the Lord himself. He offers the hidden manna. So don't spoil your appetite with compromise. But then there's also this white stone with a name written on it. Now, the mystery of the white stone is not clear, but it's based on two practices. One, they say, at the temple. Now, this temple of Eclipius, which is, you know, you've heard of the rod of Eclipius, uh, which is the, the symbol for pharmacy. Now, that's after the uh, Greek god. And so there was one um, in Pergamum. And people would come to this temple to be healed. It is told that they would come, and this is the snake god, right? If you remember the symbol. So people would come. They were supposed to spend the night in that temple sleeping. And if they get a dream, they have to tell the priest, and possibly as they pray or whatever, the, uh, they would be healed. And if they're healed, then their names are written in this white marble stone. So that's one way we think is how this is being referenced. But the second is the Roman games. These Roman games, the ones who are victorious, they would get this white stone with a name written on it, and that would become their pass, like their season pass, as it were, to every other celebration that they would have in that season. And, and what the Lord is saying is, I'm going to give you something better than the world offers. This is much better. This is nothing compared to what the world offers. This is junk, brothers and sisters. The compromise that we are trying to compromise and give up is, is the hidden manner. The fact that we can have the privilege to dine with the Lord himself or to be, to be with him forever. Nothing else compares to that. To the one who conquers. And so the lesson that we have is that we will not compromise, but we will persevere. We will not compromise, but we will persevere. I'm not sure why we give in to this nature of ours that wants to run away from God instead of running to God. I... Uh, you may have heard of this story, but I read this some time ago, and I thought that was, that was just so, uh, so wonderful uh, imagery. The story about this uh, woman who's in this car is driving in the highway, and there's this 
truck, which is um, uh, a van, I guess, is very close and kind of chasing her. And so she gets a little perturbed. And she tries to move lanes, and he moves lanes, and he, 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 she, she exist, exited, and he also exited, stayed very close to, to her car. And she panicked. And so after dodging back and forth and trying to get rid of him, and he was, she wasn't able to do that, she gets to this gas station, uh, and as soon as she gets there, she runs out and gets into the safety of the gas station. And this man who was following her in this van, he comes and opens the car, the back door, and behind there was the serial rapist who, who had gotten into the car without her knowledge. And so what this man was doing was not trying to pursue her, but was trying to protect her. But as she saw herself, uh, saw him in the rearview mirror, all she could see was this pursuing of a person. And sometimes when God pursues us, we have this wrong impression, idea of who God is, because we have a wrong impression of who God is. And no wonder we're willing to compromise. No wonder we say that I'm going to take care of myself. I like the junk that this world is giving without recognizing that God offers to us himself, the hidden manna, an invitation to be with him. And so the question is that, that for all of us as a community, we were to say that, oh, that we will not compromise. We will not compromise. But that we will persevere. So that all of us around the throne, we can be called those conquerors through Jesus Christ, because of him, through his strength we would be those conquerors. So the lesson today is that we will not compromise, but we will persevere. Understand our situations, our circumstances are difficult, and Jesus says, I know it. I know where you live. I know this is where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. Repent. May it not be that we have heard this and we've just walked away and not repented of those things that we have allowed in our lives to compromise and have compromised. So I want to leave you with two challenges. And those two challenges are that I want to decide right now to stop compromising about. And I want to leave that blank with you. The second is I want to decide right now to start the discipline of dash so that I'll be an overcomer by God's grace and strength. I'll stop compromising. I don't know what it is in your life that you've been compromising, but you will say, Lord, I'm going to stop compromising with that. And Stopping in itself is no good unless you have a discipline that you would start to continue. That's perseverance, not just compromise, but perseverance. So I want to invite you to close your eyes and we'll take about 30 seconds and say, what is it, Lord, that in my life I've been compromising? I want to repent of that. I don't want the double-edged sword in my life to, to destroy 
But Lord, if it's the double-edged sword of your word that shone light into my heart, that divides, as it were, the soul and the, and the, and the bone as, and the joint, may it be, Lord, that, uh, that it would be a surgical operation, would remove the sin completely away. I don't want to do anything with the sin. I thank you for pursuing me to show me again and again that these are things that you detest, that you don't like. And help me, Lord, to have the discipline to start in my life. So that as I persevere through the strength that you give me, that I will live a life well-pleasing in your sight. We ask for nothing more and nothing less. Father God, we, we are so thankful for your grace and your mercy for warning after warning, after reminder after reminder to show us, Lord, of how our hearts and our minds, our souls have been so captured by the things of this world that we have reduced your grace, abused your mercy, and Lord, we have walked away in in many ways, compromising a little here and a little there. And you have reminded us, Lord, that we understand our life is difficult, that things can get caught up, and there's so many challenges, and the roles that we play, and the life that we, the, the, the places that you placed us, and the situation and the circumstances that we're going through. But Lord, we pray that none of those would ever be an excuse, never be an excuse, in the light of the glory of who you are. Because we, we, we live not in the strength of our own, but in your strength, the power that so powerfully works within us. And so, Lord Jesus, this is our plea, that we would not compromise, but we will persevere. And as we commit, Lord, these actions that we want to do, may... Father, that you would, would take joy in the fact, Lord, that you have seen our lives become more and more conformed to the image of your Son. We thank you. We love you. And thank you for enabling us. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've been to, <coughs> been to us. We pray even as we leave, Lord, and get back to the various things that we do, we pray that we will continually remember that you alone are worthy. You alone are the preeminent one. You alone are the one who deserves all that we have and that our lives are wholly dedicated to you. To this end we pray in Jesus Christ, the Lord's name, and all God's people said, Amen.